Okay, let's get into the text for today. And today's text is a little difficult. I'm not going to lie. Uh, when, you, when you hear it read, you are a little thrown off. But it begins in verse 22 with Jesus traveling again. The, the title of our series is The Road, and uh, every passage that we're looking at has, usually makes reference to the fact that Jesus is traveling or he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's headed towards the cross and towards his final mission of sacrificing his life on the cross for our sins. Jesus has resolutely set his face to Jerusalem, and as he's going through the highways and byways, the backwaters of Jerusalem, he's teaching, he's healing, he's... Um, He's rebuking people. He's doing all manner of amazing things. Sometimes he heals people, right? Sometimes he casts out demons. Sometimes he gives parables like the parable of the mustard seed or the yeast that was given right before this passage. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see that. Sometimes Jesus is kind and compassionate on his travels in and around Jerusalem. Sometimes he's incredibly harsh and rebuking, right? He is particularly harsh to the Jewish ruling establishment, the religious establishment of his day. Sometimes Jesus says things that are very clear and make perfect sense, and sometimes Jesus is a little vague, right? And possibly because of this, very often in the Gospels, people ask Jesus questions. They ask him questions. Last week, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. They asked him a question, and that set Jesus off on his uh, story about how uh, we are to pray. And the week before that, there was a passage that was asked, the, the, Jesus was asked by a religious ru- ruler a question to try to trap him, right? So the last two Sundays, there have been questions that have been posed to Jesus, and that has kind of launched Jesus off on uh, either the parable or the story that he tells And today, again, we have a question. We don't know who it's from. We don't know if it's a man or a woman. We don't know anything. It just says a certain person comes up to Jesus, and they ask this very pointed question. They ask, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? That's a provocative question, right? It's a very provocative question. Now, what's important for us to know about this is that, like most questions, it has a little bit of a backstory to it, right? Most questions that are asked don't, are a little bit like an iceberg, right? You see the 10% above the water is the actual question, but there's 90% of stuff underneath the question kind of propping it up or motivating that question that's being asked in the first place. So the question we need to ask ourselves is really to understand what this man is asking, Right? The question we need to ask ourselves is what's motivating this person? What what is directing this person to ask this question about salvation? What's motivating this question? Because it's clearly something that Jesus has done or taught or said has motivated this person to come up and ask this very pointed and unique question. And so what we're going to do here for a second is a little what they call historical background, right? That's a very fun word. It's very exciting. College students love the word historical background. This is at the point where most people take naps or, I don't know, order food on their phones. 
But the, the idea or the, the word that I think we need, to, we need to hang our hats on this morning to understand really what this guy or, not, or girl is asking Jesus, probably a man, because in that culture, women usually didn't ask questions, which was not a good thing about that culture. Uh, the word that we need to hang our hat on is this word chosenness, chosenness. So if you have your notes in front of you, it might be, is that in your notes? It may or may not be. Ashley did our notes. It's up on the screen. You can write chosenness in your notes. So you see, Israel's God uh, chose a people, right? Long ago, God selected out Abraham. If you know the, story, the biblical narrative, you know this story. It's a fairly common one. From among all the peoples of the earth, God chose Abraham and developed a special relationship with Abraham's family, right? So Abraham was in some real and true sense chosen. And from that time on, everyone who was a part of his family knew and believed that as long as they stayed faithful to the calling of God, to the, to the fact that they were chosen, this, they didn't run off and worship any other little g-gods uh, of any other nations around, that as long as they did that, as long as they stayed faithful to their status as a chosen people, that God was going to dig them out of any sticky situation they might find themselves in, right? This was an inherent belief for the people of Israel at the time. But this idea also has some ramifications for ultimate salvation. What, I mean by, what do I mean by ultimate salvation? Well, we'll get into that in a second. You see, Israel had a belief that one day God was going to sort out the entirety of the world, right? They understood, probably in a more acute way than we understand, because they didn't have air conditioning, that the world was a broken place, right? They, they, you know, the life expectancy of an average human was like 35, right? It was a much harsher world that they occupied. So they understood in a, probably a way that we don't even understand how broken the world was and how in need the world is, was and is of being sorted out, right? So they had this belief that God was going to come and sort out the world. They believed that a savior, a deliverer, or in their language, a messiah would come this person would defeat Israel's enemies, so they would um, kick out the Romans, or they'd kick out the Assyrians, or they'd kick out the Babylonians, or they'd kick out whoever it was that was uh, the enemy of Israel at the time, and that, they would, and, that this, and that God would then judge the nations, all right? They believed that there was coming a day when this kingdom would be inaugurated. Inaugurated, that's an interesting word, isn't it? We just had an inauguration, Right? Uh, our president, right, the president or whoever wins any type of election, they win their election, right? But then there's usually a period of time between when they win that election and when they are inaugurated, when the, when the power or the authority that they won in an election is enacted in public. Does this make sense? So Israel believed that God was uh, in charge, but that his kingdom, his rule, his reign, his authority had not been fully inaugurated in the world. Does this make sense? And so they were anticipating, they were waiting for this inauguration of God's full rule and reign, his full kingdom to come on earth. And Jewish people believed that God was already king, right? This is important to remember. He was already king, but he was in the process of working out the, uh, a story that would end in the inauguration of his kingdom, okay? It was a process for them. But they believed it, and they hoped for it, and they, they believed fervently that it would come. But it had not, because of the brokenness of the world, it had not yet come. Does this make sense? 
But they did believe that there was coming a day when God's kingdom would come, and then everything would be set right. This is how uh, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it. Uh, He says, when Yahweh, which is just their name for God, was king, Israel would be ruled properly through the sort of ruler Yahweh approved of and would administer justice for Israel and judgment for the nations. I think we have that up there. Yeah, you can read it. And the interesting thing about this is that when Jewish people talked about this day of salvation, that's how they talked about it, this day of salvation, this day when God would take his place, at the, as the true king of the world, the way they talked about it was they said things like this. They said things like, when the kingdom of heaven comes, right? This is the type of, this is how they spoke. When the kingdom of heaven comes, or when God establishes his kingdom, right? This is the way they spoke about this thing that was going to happen. Uh, and, they, and they quoted passages like Isaiah 33:22, And this is what it says in Isaiah 33:22. if you can throw that up because it's helpful to read. It says this, For Yahweh is our judge. Yahweh, so God, is our ruler. Yahweh is our king. He will what? Save us, right? He will save us. And re- now remember the question that Jesus was asked. Jesus was asked about Salvation. Who is going to be saved? Who gets in on this is the question that's being asked. And so Israel believed that salvation was coming in the form of God establishing his kingdom on earth. This is an important distinction to make. They believed this was happening on the physical earth, okay? Now fast forward to the time of Jesus with me. So that's the historical background that we have to understand in order to understand what's going on in this passage. Now if you fast forward into the time of Jesus, and Jesus is walking around the, air, the Israel at the time, the areas of Jerusalem, speaking to Jewish people. And imagine if you were a Jewish person at this time, right? You're just living in your, in your house in a small village, maybe with two or three hundred people on the outskirts of Israel. And there's this man that you hear about who is doing miracles, Right? He's performing miracles, he's casting out demons, and he's preaching about the kingdom. Right? And he is saying things like, the kingdom is drawing near. Right? This is what Jesus says, the kingdom is drawing near. And all the signs and wonders that he's doing, he's saying publicly, this is a sign of the kingdom. Right? This is what Jesus is saying. You know, if you're this Jewish person in this, in this village, what you automatically think, right? What automatically comes to your mind is you think salvation is on its way, right? God is going to judge the world. The Messiah is going to kick out the Romans who were occupying them at the time. He's going to fulfill his promise to Abraham and David, and he's going to do it through Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah where salvation is on its way, right? This is what you think. This is exactly what you think in your mind when you hear this type of language. This is a very exciting thing if you're a Jewish person and you're, and you're living in Israel at this time. They believed that just like they were delivered out of slavery in Egypt by God, they were going to be saved or delivered by this person, by this man, Jesus. Only this time it would be permanent. Right? They wouldn't slip back into slavery to other nations. This time it would be permanent. It would be uh, universal. All right? And they believed that since they were chosen, since they were God's special people, they would be at what? Because they were chosen, they would be at the 
front of the line for this salvation, right? That the first ones in, the very first ones in, would be those who were chosen, would be Abraham's family. But Jesus is doing something a little interesting, right? He's doing all of these signs and wonders. He's proclaiming the kingdom in some very specific and special ways. But he's also being really hard on Abraham's family. He's being really hard on the religious establishment of his day. He's saying things like he says in chapter 13, verses 8 through 9, that was right before the passage we read, where he compares Israel to a tree that's not bearing fruit and talks about cutting that tree down, Right? So this is a very strange thing to be, for somebody who is Israel's Savior or Messiah to be saying, right? It's very strange. And it obviously leads this person to ask this question because he hears what Jesus is saying. He believes in some sense that Jesus is the one who's going to inaugurate this kingdom of God, the salvation that's going to come for Israel. But he also hears Jesus saying these strange things about how Israel might not be in the front of the line anymore, Right? It's a very strange thing for, it, it would create a lot of dissonance in the heart or in the mind of this person. And so he asks this question because he needs clarification. And what does Jesus do? He affirms his suspicions, right? That's what Jesus does in this passage. He says, it's true. Just because you have a certain type of blood flowing through your veins does not mean that you are automatically at the front of the line. This is what Jesus says to this man or woman. The door is not automatically open to, just be, to you just because you're one of Abraham's kids, is essentially what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying to all of Israel, in effect, that the people of God are being reconstituted. Now, what do I mean by reconstituted? The people of God are being redefined. The boundaries of, what God's, of who and what God's people are in the person of Jesus is, are, is being redefined, right? And Jesus, we'll see in a little bit, is um, breaking open the boundaries of what it means to be God's people, all right? All right. Jesus says, in essence, your genealogy does not get you into this, what he, what he says is kind of like a great banquet, Right? This is the illusion that Jesus makes. This deliverance that is coming are, are for those, not just who were born to a certain family, but who strive to enter through what Jesus calls a narrow door. Here's what he says. We'll just read it. Uh, he said to them, the beginning in verse 23, he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I do not know who you are or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, right? We had dinner with you. Uh, you taught in our streets. You, you, you're walking around Israel, the place where we live. But but he will reply, I do not know you or where you come from. Away from me, you evildoer. Right? So this passage is primarily, this passage is primarily about Jesus' relationship with Israel. Sometimes we want to make this passage about our eternal destinies. And it does have that in it. So we'll get to that in a second. But we, this, when we read this passage at the, at the forefront, it is about Jesus, how Jesus is related to Israel. Do you see that? Does that make sense? I just need a couple head nods to make sure I'm, it's, see, it's a, it makes me feel good. It's a self-esteem thing. It's very important for us pastors. Sorry. It is, but it's also a joke. Um, 
So that's what this passage is primarily about, Jesus' relation to Israel. So what does this mean for us, right? We're not, you, some of you might be Jewish, I don't know, but most of us in this room aren't Jewish. I'm very, I'm like Irish and German, right? What does this mean for me? What does this passage look like for me? Because I'm not Jewish, this isn't about my relatedness, right? There's just two things as we, as we close up here, two things that I think are really pertinent for us today, Okay? Uh, and the first, this one's kind of technical, so if you like philosophy, this one will be good for you. I see all you philosophy nerds, get your pens out. Uh, Jesus is making, uh, I have it in your notes as number one, Jesus makes uh, claim, Jesus claims are exclusive. So Jesus is making what in philosophy we call an exclusive claim to truth. Jesus is making an exclusive claim to truth. Now, this is a little hot button, okay? Because in our world, with, uh, with all of the things that are happening and all the, all the type of religions that are competing and all the different ideologies that are competing for our attention, to say that you're making a truth claim, and that truth claim, that claim to the, reality, the true reality of the way in which the world works, is exclusive, right? That it is the truth and other things are not, tends to be a pretty hot button thing, um, in kind of in political circles, what, we often, what, what you often hear, you can read this in any publication any day, what you often hear is that what we need is kind of a private faith, a privatized faith, and then we bring kind of common, um, common beliefs to the, to the public sphere. And so we keep our more exclusive kind of private religious beliefs separate from our public interaction, right? Have you, have you ever heard this? Does this make sense? Um, that is not a bad sentiment, really. I, I think we, when we come into the public sphere, we shouldn't be um, completely beating people over the heads with, with things, right? It's, help, it's helpful to find common ground and dialogue and do all those things. Um, but it happens to also not be possible in general because if you have a belief about, what ultimate, about ultimate reality, that your belief about ultimate reality will um, have some ramifications for the ways in which you think publicly. Does this make sense? Publicly or politically. It's not... Um, I'm trying to make this not sound harsh, but because uh, I don't think it is, it's just true. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but so if you are no and no, this happens. This is on every every side of the religious spectrum, right? Because if you're a uh, if you're a Muslim person, your uh, your views about ultimate reality do color the ways in which you think society should work, and that you need to bring that to the public sphere. If you're um, if you're a Buddhist person, your views about ultimate reality, uh, and those are deeply held beliefs. Uh, they need to be brought into the public sphere, and we need to dialogue about those things. We can't, we can't dialogue in public as, like, um, half of ourselves. Does this make sense? Sorry, that's a total, man, that was a total, <laughs> sorry. Uh, so, anyways, let's get back to the notes. Uh, many people will say today that the most prevalent problem with our world is this idea of religious exclusivity, right? That the reason we, that all, most of the violence that happens in our world is because of religious extremism. Most of the, uh, most of the uh, political or social strife that occurs in our world is because of this type of, these type of claims to truth, right? These claims of uh, the exclusivity of our truth. But this is what uh, a British philosopher named Leslie, he's a man, but his name is Leslie. I'm sure that was hard for him growing up. Uh, this, is what he, this is what this philosopher says about um, a, a truth claim, an exclusive truth claim. He says, when I say I believe, I am not, I am not merely uh, describing an inward feeling or experience. I am affirming what I believe to be true, 
and therefore what I believe to be true for everyone, right? This is true, right? This, this is, uh, if you go into philosophy, this is, uh, falls under the field of epistemology, right? I'm making everybody feel very smart today. Uh, epistemology is the study of how we know things, all right, in the philosophical fields. But uh, he basically says here uh, that when you say one thing is true, you are saying that a bunch of other stuff is not true, right? It, it, it's just a matter of fact. Um, and in a kind of postmodern world where we want to keep everything relative, right, where we want to keep everything kind of um, vague and nothing to be particularly um, solid or firm. This is not to say that we shouldn't use a, a type of critical realism with our own views and, and, be, um, and be critical of the things we don't think and allow for doubt and suspicion to come in, to actually analyze what we think and why we think it, right? This is not to turn our brains off. This is just to say that when you say you believe something, when you've gathered data, right, and you make a decision based on that data about the way the world is, you believe that to be true. And you don't just believe that to be true for you. You tend to believe it for the world entirely. Does this make sense? All right. Moving on. So, to say that something is true, right, to say that you believe that something is true is not in and of itself intolerant in a philosophical sense, okay? It is simply the way we have to live our lives. We have to live our lives as believing agents. We have to believe that things are true. None of us would get anywhere in this world if we were just kind of num numbly walking around going, I don't know what to believe. I don't know what to believe. What type of cereal do you want? I don't know. You'd die. You wouldn't eat anything. You'd, just, you'd, 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 not, you'd not believe yourself directly into the grave, right? We all have to form beliefs. We all have to see the world for what it is, take in the data, take in, the, um, take in what we see, and we have to believe based on that, right? And this is part of the reason that many of you are probably Christians, because you've uh, experienced something in the world that you believe to be Jesus, right? And you've seen that resonate in your hearts and through the scriptures, and then you've acted on that. And you say, I believe this is true. To the best of my knowledge, this is true, and you have to act on that, right? Because that's the data, that's the, the sense data that you've taken in, right? This is not unreasonable. It's fairly, very reasonable. Now, if you have any more questions about this, you can come after, ask me afterwards. I have a lot of philosophy books in my office. You can read them all. You can just sit in my office and read philosophy if you want for like three years, because I did. But... Uh, but th this is true, right? This is just how it works. And Jesus is making one of these exclusive truth claims, right? He's saying, I am the narrow door, right? In essence, Jesus is saying, and this rubs us the wrong way sometimes. He's saying, I'm the kind of gateway to the way things actually are. He is saying that. We want, our, we want the, the founder of our religion to make exclus exclusive truth claims, by the way, because we want a God who knows everything. <laughs> we want a God who's running the universe and knows everything. This is what we want out of Jesus. So he says this. He makes an exclusive truth claim. He, say, he says, and God says this in the Old Testament, too, in other places. He says, I'm here, and these other gods aren't, right? And Jesus is saying, I'm the way, like, Life in and through me is the way, is the true way to live, essentially is what he's saying, right? And this is, and he makes this claim exclusively, right? But here's something very interesting about this passage, that while Jesus is making a, a, a truth claim that's exclusive, I want you to notice something about this passage, which is the total and radical uh, inclusivity of his statement that follows directly afterwards, because there's something really unique about this um, uh, this time in human history, and that was that people were 
completely and utterly tribal, right? So everybody had a belief that I was in and my people are in, and maybe like my 15 people, not even like my whole nation of people, but like my 25 people are in, and everybody else is out, right? And so what this, it was this uh, citizen of Israel was saying, so when, they, when, he was asking, when he or she was asking this question, is am I, who's going to be saved? What he's asking is, is Israel in and everyone else is out, right? He's asking this question, is just my people are in, and everyone else is out, right, Jesus? And what Jesus says is, no, that's not true. Actually, Everyone has the possibility of being in, right? He's exploding the borders of what it meant to be inclusive in this day and age, right? He's saying they might come from the east and the west and the north and the south. Everybody has access to this, right? Which is, which is radically inclusive, which I think those of us who get a little nervous about Jesus making exclusive truth claims need to pay attention to. How revolutionary this was what a, what a monumental leap forward this was in, in thinking in this time in which this passage was uh, experienced and written down. It was groundbreaking. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that everybody has access. That people will come from the north and the south and the east and the west. And everybody has access to what he calls this big party, this big banquet table that he is laying out for us. It's beautiful, isn't it, in a way? Jesus is saying, well, no, Israel, you don't just get in because you're chosen. You don't just get in because you have a certain type of blood running through your veins. Jesus says, I'm the pathway. Yes, for sure. I'm exclusively the pathway. But it's open to everyone, right? It's kind of beautiful. It's kind of unique and interesting and really, really good news, isn't it? Yeah. So that's number one. Ooh, that's, you say, that's only one? <laughs> this, one will be, this one will be quicker. Uh, number two, Buddy Jesus doesn't count. Do we have that photo? Do we have the photo of Buddy Jesus? Throw it up. <laughs> that guy doesn't count. Uh, don't, don't watch that movie that that comes from. It's bad. But uh, anyways, Buddy Jesus, right? Remember what the, the people said in verses 29? People... Uh, people will come, uh, sorry, uh, in verses 29 and 30, what he says essentially is that uh, the people will come and they'll say, why, why can't we get into this banquet? And what I'll say is, what they'll say is, we, we hung out with you. We had dinner with you. You taught in our streets, right? We kind of know you. Let me in. We were buddies, right? In our culture, in American culture, everybody kind of has a vague knowledge of who Jesus is, right? People wear crosses who, uh, and they're not really even that aware of what the significance of that cross is, but it's kind of entered our, uh, it's kind of a lingua franca, right? It's kind of entered into our cultural conversation. Uh, the iconography of Christianity and the ideas about Jesus and p- pictures of Buddy Christ and things of that nature. Did anybody ever see those figurines that was like Jesus throwing football with the boys that they had a few years ago? It was like Jesus, I think one of them was Jesus playing football and he had like a kid in a headlock, <laughs> right? Jesus is just kind of Jesus is just kind of entered into our cultural minds, right? He he's he's present there, and so everyone has a a kind of claim to Jesus that we can all say in some very vague uh, kind of cultural sense that Jesus and I are buddies. I know who he is, right? And Jesus seems to believe that this kind of vague cultural claim on himself, right? He says uh, this claim that you have on me that I 
you know, I did some of my teaching in your streets, and maybe I even came over to your house once and had dinner. doesn't count. It doesn't count. Now, why does, he, why does he say this? Why does Jesus say that this kind of just being buddies with Christ doesn't count? Once again, it's, it comes across kind of harsh, right? Why does he say this? It's not casual knowledge of Jesus that counts. Uh, Jesus does not want your casual acquaintance, right? Jesus does not want your casual acquaintance. He wants your life. He wants you to live life the way he wants you to live life. He wants you to find your life in him. And he's not doing this because he's overbearing. He's not doing this because he... um, because he just is a control freak and wants everybody to do what he wants them to do. He's doing this, the scriptures say, because he is the very source of the life we've always wanted. And he knows that to be true. And if he knows that to be true, it would be uh, impolite of him to not tell us. Right? If that is the truth, right? If that is the truth, that Christ that Jesus is the source of our very lives, the, the telos, the, the source, the progenitor, the creator of our very lives, the end of our very lives even, telos is end. If that's true, then the only right thing to do is tell us that, right? And for us to align ourselves with that reality, if it's true, if it's true. And Jesus believes that it's true. And Christians, for thousands of years, have made this proclamation that Jesus is Lord, right? That it, that it is true, that Jesus is the Lord of the universe, and that in order to live life to its fullest, in order to have what Jesus calls um, kind of streams of water that like bubble up from your belly, he says even in one place, in order to have that, a joy that's kind of like inescapable, In order to have that, you have to peg your life to him. You have to make the proclamation that Jesus is Lord. You have to believe that he died and that he rose again to conquer death. And that you kind of set your life on his trajectory as his disciple. That's what he's saying. It's an exclusive claim. It is. It's not all-inclusive. It's not. It is exclusive in some real and true sense. But if it's true, if it's true, it's the only right thing for Jesus to say, right? It's the only right thing for him to say in this passage. And I, for one, believe it, which is why I'm, the, which is why I'm a pastor, just for the record, because <laughs> I do believe this, because I've had, because I've had a, an existential encounter of the risen Christ. I've had an emotional, spiritual, what I believe to be an emotional, spiritual encounter with him. And I believe that the person to whom I've encountered, I see that person reflected in the scriptures, right? And I believe that, I believe, uh, I believe on authority, right? The, the story that the church has been telling for 2,000 years, right? So there's data, right? I believe there's some legitimate um, historical, critical, um, uh, nearly scientific reasons to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I think there's, there's some validity to that idea. Right? I have, there's all kinds of data. There's all kinds of input that I have that makes me be a Christian. But the primary one, the primary one, is that I think I've had dinner with Jesus in a sense. I think I've met with him. I think I've spoken to him. And not in like this way. But, uh, and that I believe it to be true. It resonates in my heart. 
And that's all that really matters. That's all that really matters. And so what baptism is, just a plug for baptism in a few weeks, what baptism is, is the public confession that you think that too. That you think that too. And so on uh, Easter Sunday, we're going to be baptizing people. Uh, not because we like to make a spectacle of you, but because uh, that's what the church has done. That's, historically, the church baptizes on Easter. Because what better way, what better way, what better way to tell the world about what Jesus is than to dunk some people in water? Right? No. What better way to show people who Jesus is and what he is than to, to have people stand up and signify, I was, uh, I was buried with Christ and now I'm risen with him. What better way to do that? So if you haven't been baptized in water uh, or you, you were baptized as a child and it's something that you want to affirm as an adult, um, we do have a sign up back there. We'd love to do that. We'd love to do that. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So that's my little plug for that. But before we go today, before we go today, I just want to affirm that these claims are exclusive. God doesn't want all of you. Jesus does want all of you. Not because he wants to control you, not because he's a dictator, but because he has the very keys to life. And if you haven't given all of yourself over to him, which, uh, newsflash, none of us have, (laughs) um, uh, that's something we need to do because it leads to life and life to the full. Like I said uh, after worship, God is in the business of reconciling all the broken pieces of our lives back into himself, and he wants to do that for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we know, uh, we believe in this place uh, that you were accessing reality accurately, that you know who you are, and Jesus knew who you are. And so we ask that uh, for all of us in this place who... um, haven't given our whole selves to you, would you begin and continue the work of uh, forming us in your, uh, into your image? Father, I pray for those in this place who maybe haven't made that full commitment to follow Jesus with their whole lives. They haven't made the, the total commitment to uh, proclaim the fact that Jesus is Lord, either publicly or even in their own hearts, God. I pray that the Spirit of God would be there, that they would have a real existential encounter with the risen Jesus, and that that would compel them and show them Uh, that the things that Jesus says about both himself and reality are true. Jesus, we want to be a people who lovingly, not in a judgmental way, not in a way that's overbearing, not in a way that's mean, never in a way that condescends or belittles, but always in a way that affirms life, that affirms goodness, that affirms love, makes this truth plain with our lives and with our words. We love you, Jesus, and we ask you would help us to love you more. We pray it all in your name. Amen. And amen. Go today in the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.